we're in the midst of First uh, Peter chapter three, and Peter is discussing a number of things uh, regarding uh, the faith and the practical application as to how to function and behave. He's talked to uh, the Roman Empire that had so many slaves, told them how uh, to live at that time. Uh, we were able to see from that some application for employees today and how to obey those who have authority over us in that way. Uh, then uh, wives and uh, submission within the household, husbands, how to love and lead uh, families. And then uh, we had a discussion about suffering uh, for doing right. That, you know, we if we're going to be persecuted, it needs to be because of our obeying Christ. Uh, you know, there's no glory in uh, suffering for, uh, you know, the things we do wrong. Uh, you know, that's just uh, reaping and sowing. That, that uh, when we do sinful things, uh, we can plan on suffering uh, for having done those things. Uh, but when we serve Christ and we live obediently and we suffer for it, there's a reward uh, in that. So then you come to uh, verse 18 and then uh, the remainder of the chapter, which puts some complex issues forward. So um, uh, hopefully we'll uh, finish up this chapter, but uh, we're going to divert into a number of er other areas for study this evening. So to begin with, he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So we're going to get to the discussion of the spirits in prison uh, in just a moment. But this suffering once for sin. It's very significant to the Jews of the day. Uh, because they were offering sacrifices over and over. In, in order to cover their sins. And uh, in that thought, those sacrifices only covered. They did not remove the sin. They didn't wash it away. Jesus Christ's sacrifice, his shed blood, removes it completely. Um, very often, uh, people are plagued with a guilty conscience. And our enemy capitalizes on that. He'll remind us of what we've done, of what we've been, of things that are very shameful. And I make the strong point that there's a dramatic difference between guilt and shame. Okay, um, There are things we've done in the past that if anyone brings it up at any point, it's going to cause us shame. But... The penalty has been paid by Jesus Christ. And so the guilt has been removed. Okay. Uh, I was a criminal in years past. I got arrested for some of that behavior. And I went to jail and did my time. That payment is such that I can't ever go back to jail and be punished again for what I've already been convicted of and sentenced to, and served. You know, in that end, I'm not guilty anymore. I've paid for the crime. Now I'm ashamed of the things that I did. And at times, that's a burden. But Paul tells us very clearly in Ephesians that we should forget the things that are behind and press on towards the high calling of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a dilemma in the issue of forgiveness, that when we haven't fully embraced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, we can wallow in the guilt. And in that process, um, there are so many people of the world, psychology and the self-help groups 
that their focus is, right, let's go back into the past and let's review everything and let's somehow, let's bring it to the surface and that will cleanse you of the past. Well, well okay, here is the truth of the matter, right? If, if I'm living in that sin, I am, in fact, taking it in. It, it, you know, in particular, sexual sin. The scripture says every other sin is outside the body, whereas sexual sin is in the body. And it's a great offense against our very physical frame, against our person. There's such guilt with that. Well, you know, that being introduced into our soul. Take any sin. Theft. Lying. Uh, you know, uh you know, fill in all of the blanks, whatever, whatever sin might come to mind. Uh, selfish ambition. We could go through the list. Drunkenness. All these things, right, we're taking them in. It's polluting us. Some have a much deeper impact than others, but, but we're taking them in and they're polluting our person. So we have the, the I hate to say natural, it's a spiritual sense, but the natural sense of I need to get this out of me. I don't want this in me. This has tainted me. Well, for a world that doesn't understand, right, Christ flowed in and purged out that which was filthy. Uh, then we don't have to. But for those that don't embrace Christ's grace, forgiveness, shed blood, then there's always that mindset of how, how am I going to get this out? By nature, in our heart, in our mind, how am I going to get this out? Well, for the unsaved person, the closest thing they can do to that is to talk about it, right? Confession. So, so sit with the counselor, sit with the psychologist, sit with the self-help group and talk and talk and talk. And what that does, you guys, it's a form of meditation, right? This will sound weird, but follow the logic here. It's coming out of your mouth. It's entering your ear and it's going right back into your, you're just cycling it. It's not purging you of anything. Your memory's having to recount it. It's a terrible process. It, it, it's very damaging process, right? In Christ, as believers, if you need to deal with it, right? If some behavior from the past is affecting you presently. Christ is going to reveal that to you, right? He's going to show you, hey, you know, um, whatever, you know, your bitterness from these past experiences is causing you to presently be bitter with the people around you. You know, your, your uh, guilt from the past is causing you to uh, be easily angered you know, presently, and so you lash out at people uh, very easily. Uh, Christ will deal with you on those issues. We don't have to sit around and make these connections to figure that, has Christ, has Christ, do, do we read, do we understand, has Christ forgiven us? He's forgiven us, right? Who else do we have to be accountable to? You think you do? Well, consider David. Right? He takes his military, in particular Uriah, one of his commanding officers, and he sends them off into battle while he stays at home, right? And orders room service. And in the midst of that, he's checking out his neighbors and sees his neighbor's wife bathing on the rooftop next door, lusts for her, sends for her, sleeps with her, impregnates her. Oh, I messed up bad now. I got to cover this up. Invite Uriah home. How are things going in the battle? Oh, good. Glad to hear it. Thanks for the report. Go home and spend the evening with your wife, hoping, right, he'll be intimate with his wife, and then her pregnancy can be blamed on Uriah. Uriah is so noble, right? And, and you can pretty much guarantee that he's thinking of his king 
and his commander. The scripture describes David as a man after God's own heart. And here's Uriah being discipled by David. And oh, surely I must behave like my king so I won't go home to my wife. How could I do that? All of my brothers in arms are still on the battlefield suffering. And I'm going to enjoy the blood. David's mad. Brings him over the next day. I told you to go home and be with your wife and you weren't. And so they get drunk together. Plies him with alcohol and thinks surely, right? His inhibitions will fall and he'll go home and be with his wife if I get him drunk enough. What's he do? Sleeps on the doorstep. Refuses to go home. David, the next day, signs a death warrant for Uriah and tells his commanding officers, I'm sending Uriah to you with this order to kill him. Push him up against the wall in battle tomorrow. Intensify the battle until it's out of control and then pull all of this support back and leave Uriah at the wall to die. David <laughs> puts it sealed in Uriah's hand and says, take that to your commanding officer. Uriah goes to the battlefield, hands it, opens it up, and the commanding officer is like, good Lord, buddy. You have done something to offend the king. And they go right through that process. Put the Uriah was elite. Put the commanding officers, the elite, in the front line, push them up against the wall, intensify the battle, withdraw the support, murdered. Dead at the wall. David covers it up, invites Bathsheba into his home, lets her go through the proper period of mourning, then takes her as wife. And to the world, it looks like David is a noble character. You know, poor Uriah's wife is pregnant. Now Uriah is dead. David's taken up the mantle. What a great guy. Nathan the prophet, right, comes and says, you're a criminal. There's a long story behind that, but he says, you are guilty. All of this to say, when David confesses his sin and he goes before the Lord, he says to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. I wonder how Uriah felt about that. Dead and decomposing in his grave. God is the one who declares what is right and wrong. So when we sin, we are only sinning against God. I don't have to go back and repair all of the damage that I may have left behind me. Christ has wiped the slate clean. I don't have to pay penance by going and fixing. If God gives me the opportunity to restore, repair, repay, praise God. Praise God. But it's not part of my finding forgiveness. Christ's sacrifice covers all. It covers all. Listen. In Hebrews, the Jews really struggled with this, right? They're doing sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice, and along comes a new high priest, Jesus, in the order of Melchizedek. There's no repeated sacrifices. There's one blood of the Christ that has been poured out, washes everything away. These newborn Hebrew Christians are like, yeah, but I always used to perform sacrifice. What do I do now? And so they start going back to the temple and offering sacrifice. And the author of Hebrews says, if you continue to off offer sacrifice, then you are estranged from Christ. I'm a stranger to Christ. Oh, listen, right? None of us wants to hear that. When we enter the presence of the Lord, what do we want to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. We do not want to hear depart from me. I never knew you. I do not want to be estranged from Christ. So if in this present world, all of that ancient history behind me, I'm continuing to do things to try and correct my relationship with God, right? I'm going to pay this penance. I'm going to do this work. I'm going to be good. I'm going to, if you're doing things to try and fix yourself, and get into right standing with God, then you got to ask yourself, are you estranged from Christ? 
Because there's been one sacrifice made and you're either accepting it or you're rejecting it. You're either, you're either believing that Jesus Christ's shed blood covers all or you're doing some work on your own trying to restore yourself. But whatever that may be, let Christ speak, right? For Christ also suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust. We are not worthy of this. We were guilty. He is not guilty. All right? The just, the pure one, suffered for the impure. Uh, oh, listen. You know, think of the most innocent in this world. And think about them paying for your sins. You know, some, some totally innocent child being punished. You know, a, 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 an infant who's not even capable of making a... How terrible would that be that a child would be punished? An infant would be punished. Not even a toddler, right? When they get to be toddlers and they start telling you no and they start doing their own thing, then you can kind of see the guilt, you know, setting in. This little sitter's telling me off. I'm talking about like so pure that it would be completely inappropriate that they suffer so that you didn't have to. Jesus Christ was more pure than that. The, the just one. There was only just one just one. He was pure and he suffered on our behalf. Payment made in full. You got to understand the gravity of what's being said here. You can't pay anything, anything to cover this debt. Fill the illustration in any way you want to. Your payment is worthless. Worthless, right? If your debt is a hundred gajillion dollars and somebody comes up with that kind of money and pays it off and you walk up with the 22 cents in your hand and say, let me contribute. <laughs> Who cares about your measly contribution? It's meaningless, right? It's not as though you had that colossal debt and some other incredibly wealthy person paid it off. And boy, if you hadn't come along with your two cents worth, they weren't going to let you off. Christ paid it all. 100%. And it's important that we embrace that. Not, not just conceptually here, you guys, but that we embrace it personally in function. Christ paid my debt. I don't have to go around trying to fix and repair that which I was. This doesn't give us the free pass to just go and go, oh, okay, so I'll just act like David and I'll have a hundred Uriahs in my life. I'll bulldoze everybody. That's, that's not how this works, right? We have to come to the brokenhearted realization of the, the just paid for my unjust behavior. And I am set free by that. you got to fully embrace that. Now the devil comes along and whispers in your ear, right? Yeah, but remember your past. Listen, the shame may well up. you got to learn how to tell that voice in your heart. But I'm not guilty. <laughs> the price has been paid. You're right. I wouldn't want that shouted from the rooftops for all of the world to hear. That is a shameful thing. But the debt has been paid. I don't have to sit around and drag my knuckles and feel depressed and terrible about myself. Christ has paid the cost and delivered me from that. It's, it's not mine anymore. You know, Jesus Christ claimed it as his own. You know, you want to shame somebody? Go, go shame the guy who paid the cost. <laughs> he bought it. He bought my sin with his shed blood. So he owns the guilt. And, and therein he owns the shame. Yeah, you're right. It's not, it's not proper. But this is what our Lord did for us. So I don't have to be burdened. I don't have to be burdened by it. 
We need to let it go. So many people, right, get stuck in some cyclical loop. And it drags them back to fleshly behavior. Right? Oh, man, I feel so guilty over here. I just can't handle it anymore, so I'm going to drink. So now, now I'm actually back creating guilt for myself again. Oh, I'm over here and I'm just so ashamed of, you know, I don't know, how I was molested as a child. And I just, the shame overwhelms me. And so now I begin to behave in an irresponsible way over here in my family and in my marriage and in my job. Listen, Christ paid that price. Honestly, it doesn't belong to you anymore. Right? The devil whispers in your ear and you feel bad. Okay, there you go. You feel bad for a moment. Get over it. Christ paid the price. The just for the unjust. You are guilty. Those things aren't shameful. They don't belong to you anymore. They belong to Christ. We could dwell on it a lot more, but we'll move on. He suffered once, once, once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Now listen, I just want to tell you beforehand, we're going to deal with a number of issues as we go through this that a whole bunch of the really learned people in Christianity love to debate about the following verses endlessly. I'm going to deal with some of those things so that we see them. But there's a greater picture for us about how do we function? That, that's what we, we want to know, right? We, we could get into all kinds of boogeyman stories here and, and then wild speculation about what do they mean? And in the end, how does it help us live as Christians? That's the question. How does it help us live as Christians? So in the beginning of this, it starts, the debate starts with he was put to death in the flesh but made alive by the spirit. Well, now the scholars want to debate does that S on spirit, is it supposed to be capitalized? Is that the Holy Spirit? Or was it just his spirit as a person? Right? Well, honestly, was the Holy Spirit involved in his resurrection? Clearly. Okay? So is it appropriate or inappropriate that the S is capital, meaning Holy Spirit? Who cares? Right? I mean, is it Jesus' spirit? Well, how about, right, uh, John 19, verse 30, uh, Jesus had received the sour wine. He said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit, lowercase s, right, his living person. And then what do we read in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So, so whether it was his spirit that resurrected him personally or the Holy Spirit, right? Because we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He committed his spirit into the hands of God. And like I said, you know, he said, I lay my life down. I take it up again. Yet the scripture also says that the Father raised him from the dead. And yet the Holy Spirit was involved in bringing him back to life. Why? Well, because they're all the same, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Godhead was involved. Why do people want to debate over these issues? Well, here's what it comes down to. We are filled with pride and we like to be right. That's how simple it is, right? You think about these people that walked with Jesus continuously. And what is the biggest argument that they had? No, other people, his situation amongst themselves. The, the biggest argument that's mentioned all the time is who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? People that walked with Jesus in ministry for three years were continuously found engaged in the argument of, you know, I'm actually better than you. All the time, over and over again, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. Like children, right? I like the fact that that's recorded in the scripture, 
because it, it exposes my own heart. In that, this is our human tendency to constantly be comparing ourselves amongst ourselves. I'm better than that guy. That guy thinks he's better than me. I'm better than they're better than we're better than I'm better than they're better than. Guess what? None of us is better than any other one of us. We're all filthy, rotten sinners that have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. Who's more right, though? Big deal. Who cares? Some of us may be more right than others. Paul specifically said in the book of Corinthians, there will be conflicts amongst you and there should be conflicts amongst you to prove who's right amongst you. There will be and there should be. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say that, to prove who's right and to prove who's wrong. But then we don't get to sit around and say, see, I told you I was right. Who cares if you're right or I'm right? You know, if you are right and I was wrong, let me embrace your rightness and then we'll walk with the Lord together, right? Because honestly, who showed you you were right? The Holy Spirit. Who showed everybody that I was wrong? The Holy Spirit. Are we not all following the Holy Spirit here? Right? Jesus specifically said, Sermon on the Mount, Call no man on earth your spiritual father. Well, that's interesting. So much of Christianity is engaged in that. Right? The right reverend holiness father, potentate so-and-so, such-and-such. He even went as far as to say, call no man on earth your teacher. For you have one teacher, which is the Christ. By the time the apostles were writing their epistles, a movement had invaded the church known as Gnosticism. Okay? The root word of Gnosticism is knowledge, gnosto, to know. And they had a mentality in the Gnostics that the way to be more spiritual was achieved through knowledge. And that knowledge was achieved through divine inspiration. Now that they had received it, if you wanted it also, you had to come hang out with them. And they would impart to you their special knowledge. It wasn't Christianity at all. Not at all. It's Gnosticism, right? Later, we see this develop into uh, the worship of Sophia, which is the goddess of wisdom, right? Again, that idea of I know more than you do. So, so think about how much that goes on today, right? I mean, after all, are you following the science? Right? I know more than you do. No, we know more than you do. And now everybody's arguing about who they know and what connection. Well, did you read this article? Did you read that article? Have you heard? Do you know the secret things, the Illuminati? Do you, are you aware of all of these ins and outs? Special knowledge. Special knowledge. Look. I can't hardly wrap my mind around get up every single day and die to yourself. <laughs> Go serve your wife like Christ loved the church. Right? I got a hard enough time driving a nail through that every single day. That, that the guy who's next to me going, yeah, but have you read this special thing? And these guys, they're involved with it. I, I can't get into it. I can't get into it. Because I, I got I to gotta digest this and swallow this. So now back to this discussion, right? Whose spirit is what spirit is raised? And Christ was raised by the spirit. Okay? The, the ancient scholars recognized the need to put a capital S there. Look, I'm only scratching the surface. We're about to go a bunch deeper. If it feels like I'm just blowing this thing up big, oh, wait till we get to the next verses. And we see what's going on. Follow the concept here by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. What spirits in prison? Well, let's go even deeper. Verse 20, who formerly were disobedient. Then once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. 
there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of the good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. You know, this whole concept then births out into a whole bunch of things that people want to speculate on. So let's attack a few subjects here. Paul, in Ephesians, you might want to make at least make note of these things. If you want to turn there, great. Speaking of the prisoners, Paul said, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, beseech you, I'm begging you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith in you all. But to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of captivity, captive, and gave uh, when he ascended. I'm sorry, I, I missed the verse. Let me back up. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended also is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You hear the captivity in there. You hear the prisoner in there, you hear the descending and the ascending in there. You may be familiar with the Apostles' Creed. In the Apostles' Creed, it now says that Jesus descended into hell for three days. Okay, That wasn't in the original Apostles' Creed. That was added centuries later. Okay. It originally simply said that he descended into death, or more accurately, the grave. It wasn't until later that it was added that he descended into hell. Okay. There tormented in flame for three days. Not according to the scripture, right? What did we just read? Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Right? What do we know from the scripture? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, so, so what does this descended and ascended mean? What are we talking about here? Well, how about this? Where does it tell us that he ascended to? Heaven. Right? The throne. Right within Paul's writings, it says he, he ascended to the throne. Okay? So where did Jesus come from? The throne. Heaven. Where did he descend to? Earth. He descended from his throne to earth. Okay. Paul here lists himself as a prisoner. If he is a prisoner, right, and we are described as prisoners, what are we in prison to? Sin and death. So who did Christ preach to when he descended? Us. He descended to earth from heaven and he preached to us, souls, captive, and delivered, set free. Uh, descended first to earth, preached to us, and ascended back to the throne. Uh, well, if you try to couple these things together, you start creating things that apparently the scripture never intended. Right? And then the really smart guys want to say, well, you know, if you understood things the way we do. If you were a scholar like me. If you had special knowledge, you know, if you'd been to school. <laughs> Wait a minute. Uh, let's, let's let the scripture uh, declare things as they are declared. Now, from here, 
it gets really wild, right? Because we mentioned Noah and the flood and the souls delivered. Peter did. Uh, so then people want to say, okay, now we need to hook up Genesis 6 to this thing. Oh, okay. Well, if you're not familiar with it, uh, you can write down or turn with me to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with men forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of men was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the, uh, from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So the speculation starts here saying that the sons of God are angels or demons, fallen angels. And I got to tell you that honestly, uh, that is the best interpretation. That when it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. That literally does seem to imply that angels were intimate with the human race sexually. Okay, um, There's the possibility that's not what's being described there. But from here, a whole bunch of people begin to then connect all of these verses together and potentially create something that this passage does not say. And then they hook all of that that they've created up to what Peter just told us in the end of, of 1 Peter chapter 3. So I'll, I'll try to walk us through this. Look at Genesis chapter 6 verse 1. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth that daughters were born to them. That's pretty straightforward, right? So introduce attractive women. That's what it says right here. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. Okay, we can buy that. I'll leave in place without any argument the idea that the sons of God are angelic beings. Okay, it's difficult to argue otherwise. There are those that want to say the sons of God here are the righteous descendants of Seth. And that what is being said is that Seth's descendants saw the ungodly women of the world as attractive and began to procreate with them. That's a stretch. Okay. It's possible. That's what's being said. But not probable. The probable is angelic beings, probably fallen angelic beings, procreated with human beings. This is where things start to fall apart in this passage. Stay with me. Okay, I'm not just taking this assembly of strange Christian teachings and trying to have a special Bible study on strange Christian teachings, okay? What I want us to do is really grasp the depth of what Peter is saying about our relationship with the Lord. If we deviate off course into deeply, you know, debatable things, how much is it going to benefit us in our walk with Christ? Okay, so here within this, daughters, you know, sons of God, daughters of men, beautiful, take wives from all their choosing. 
And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now listen, where do we see the connection between sons of God, daughters of men, procreation, and this statement? There's not really any. Okay? More, what we're seeing is, God is saying, at this time in human history, as I prepare to destroy all of creation on earth, these were the circumstances that were transpiring on earth. Right? He just limited man's longevity to 120 years. That's a dramatic change at this moment in history, right? The generation immediately before this lived to be a thousand years old. You go from a thousand to hack off the top end right down to 120, right? I mean, that is dramatic. What if your lifespan was suddenly shortened to what? One tenth? Of what it would, that's dramatic, right? You're reduced, bang, 100 years, just like that. From 1,000 down to 100. Wow. That's a dramatic change that occurs right there. We don't see linguistically any connection between sons of God, daughters of men, procreation to limit the number of years. We don't see linguistically any connection. Other than God is saying, at this time on earth, these events were transpiring. God is seeing this going on, and he's limiting the age of men. Now, move to the next word. It says, the 120 years, there were giants on the earth in those days. Okay, so, so linguistically, and I'm not just taking it from the English language, right? I've learned by studying the scholars that there is no connection between verse 3 and verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. There are people that say, well, no, no, wait a minute. Sons of God, angelic beings, procreate with human beings, create a race of giants, and God has to wipe them out. Where is that in these verses? Right? Because if God wipes them out, right, there were giants after the flood. It says so right there. Right? No? Fast forward. Who does David kill? Goliath, a giant. There were giants for a long time. That tells us what? Noah had to have been a giant. Because all of humanity came from Noah's family. Say, oh, hey, the boat might have been a lot bigger than you thought. If Noah's 11 feet tall, how big is his cubit? Right? So anyway, there are points to discuss within this. Sons of God, daughters of men, procreation. There were giants on the earth in those days. Also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So now here's the thing. Linguistically, in the Hebrew language, there isn't even a connection between the mighty men and the giants. It's simply to say, sons of God, daughters of men, procreation produces mighty men. You might think that that would, right? Were they giants? We don't get that from these verses. Okay, that's speculation linguistically about how these verses connect that doesn't connect linguistically at all, right? There was also in those days giants. It doesn't say it was the result. The mighty men of renown were the result of daughters of men procreating with the sons of God. So we have the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth. It makes no connection to, listen to me, the, the language makes no connection to the wickedness, to the mighty men of renown, nor the giants. You listen to certain teachers and it's angelic beings procreated with human beings, created giants that were the mighty men of old who were unbelievably wicked, so God had to destroy the earth. That is not how this is laid out linguistically at all. Not at all. It pertains to 1 Peter chapter 3, so let me move through this. I've, I've got 10 minutes to cover about 40 chapters. So, the Lord saw the wickedness of men was greater than the earth. Every intent and thought of his heart was only evil. The Lord was sorry he had made men on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created on the face of the earth, both men and beasts, creeping thing, birds of the air, I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Why did God destroy all of creation? Because of the wickedness of men. That's how simple it is. Yeah, giants, that's really peculiar. Uh, um, you know, sons of God procreating with human beings, that's really peculiar. There's some strange stuff there. How does this all connect? Well, let's move on. Um... How about, um, yeah, let's jump right forward to Matthew, right? <clears throat> because a lot of people make this connection. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus talks about the days of Noah and the wickedness that's going on there. So Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Jesus says, but of that day, meaning the future event, when these things will unfold, when Jesus returns, when he sets up his kingdom, when the seven, day, seven years of tribulation transpire when the millennium is going to take place. So he's talking of all these future events, in particular his second coming, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of Noah before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now all of these people that have made all of this wild speculation about who did Jesus preach to and what imprisoned souls are we talking about and those angelic beings procreated with human beings and they left their rightful place and so they're in hell and so Jesus went there and preached to them and now as it was in the time, so we must be going to see sons of God procreating with human beings today as it was in the days of Noah. Wait a minute. Literally, I have read books published by Christian authors who insist that the leaders of our governments right now are the unholy offspring of demonic forces procreating with human beings, and that's how you end up with the, 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 the presidents and prime ministers that we have today. And that's why they're so wicked. Look, I got no question about how wicked they are. I got no question about that. But to take Jesus saying, just as it was in the days of Noah, see, that, that you know, angelic beings were procreating with human beings and creating a race of giants. I've literally heard Christian teachers saying, that's, Forgive me for this. That's where all of the players in the NBA come from. That's where all of these NFL players come from. That's why they're so athletic. That's why they're so superhuman. Okay, so I'll just jump off these tracks for a moment and ask you. what If, if that's true, it's not true. If that's true, how is that going to help you wake up tomorrow morning and be a better Christian? How are you going to be more dedicated to Jesus Christ to serve your neighbors, to serve your family? Right? Special knowledge, man. I've studied it. I've figured it out. You know, I only hang out with people who have also figured it out. <laughs> Special knowledge. Gnosticism. Special knowledge infecting the body of Christ. Affecting. 
the body of Christ. I'll explain to you what Jesus meant when he said, just as it was in the days of Noah. You know how, you know how I can do that? Because Jesus explained what he meant. Right in the same passage. Right? Right in the same passage. He explained it, Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. He goes on to say, but as it was in the days of Noah, even uh, as it is in heaven, uh, eating, they were eating, and uh, for as it was in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in, in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The point Jesus is making is, that generation was plugging away just like they always did, and they were suddenly interrupted by God's judgment. And Jesus is saying the same thing. The generation that sees these things transpire will be just plugging away, marrying and giving in marriage, punching into work, punching out of work, paying their bills, and they're going to be interrupted by God's judgment. So they, that generation that's going to see Jesus come needs to be, Jesus says it right there in Matthew chapter 24, they need to be watchful and ready. That's what he commands us to be, watchful and ready. I want to give you a few more verses, and then I'm going to jump back over to First uh, Peter. Colossians, please write these down. Colossians chapter 2, begin at verse 16. Paul says to the church at Colossae, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. So uh, the Christians right, were being persecuted by the Jews who were saying, if you want to be a real Christian, you have to become Jewish first religiously, and then you can get saved and be a Christian. You've got to be Jewish in order to become Christian is what they were teaching and the gentiles were like we've never gone to church on saturday we've never offered sacrifices we don't know anything about all of these different holy days that you got we just know jesus christ died for our sins and we're so happy about it that we can't stop singing and sharing that's who we are that's who the christian the, the gentile christians were now the judaizers the jewish christians come and they're they're trying to make the Gentile Christians become Jewish in order to be Christian. So Paul says, don't let anybody judge you. You like BLTs? Eat the bacon, right? Don't even worry about any of that stuff. Don't get, you don't go to church. You go to church on Sunday. That's what Gentiles do. They don't go to church on Saturday. That's a Jewish thing. In fact, the Jews who became Christians started going to church on Saturday and Sunday. That's where the two-day weekend came from. God worked on six days and took one day off. Our culture having two days off actually is an extension of that Saturday-Sunday worship. So Sunday is the day of worship for the Gentiles. Paul says, don't fret yourself about new moons, Sabbaths, festivals, food, drink. Follow what he says after this, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. The illustration I always use, my wife often travels. When she returns home, I go greet her at the airport. As Lori approaches, I don't throw myself on the ground and embrace her shadow. Kiss and hold and hug her shadow. They carry me away. Out of my mind. It's the substance. All of these religious things, new moons, Sabbaths, festivals, food, drink, that's the shadow. The substance is Christ. You're going to become infatuated with the shadow? Be infatuated with the substance, which is Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. Oh, hey, uh, right? Special knowledge of angels. What, what? What does that got to do with us? Right? We don't know much of these things. I intruding into those things which he has not seen. Sound similar to everything I just described to you? Right? I wasn't there. I don't know what those passages are about. I can't tell you definitively. No one can tell you definitively what those things mean. It does leave me to say, there is stuff about the scripture I will never understand in this life. 
That's what it leaves me with. It puts this book in a place that is beyond this world. And it leaves me fascinated, but I'm not going to sit around and tinker with them until I've created some strange thing. I read it and go, wow, that is bizarre. Moving on to what I can handle. Intruding into those things which he has not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Is this making sense to us now? Not holding fast to the head, that's Jesus Christ, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Now, some of you guys grew up in religious systems where on certain days of the week you didn't eat certain foods, right? Fish on this day, pasta on that day, right? All and ever. Oh, no, it's Lent. We got it. We can't and we can and we should and we shouldn't. All for what? Right? I have stood in mass on Christmas Eve next to a man who could say every single thing that he was supposed to right on cue, bombed out of his mind on alcohol. Could not stand up on his own, bouncing off me, bouncing off the pew, bouncing off, knew when to kneel down, knew when to stand up, knew when to say all the things, just blistered. What, what good did it do him? Nothing at all. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the Bible, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. They do nothing. Oh, well, I know this special thing, and if you study this and you connect these verses, and you, then yeah, yeah, whatever. It leaves me nowhere. It leaves me nowhere. Jesus Christ died and was buried and in the grave. And there, there is a passage, we don't have time, I would encourage you to go look at Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, where Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus the beggar dies at the same time the rich man does. The rich man is in hell and he can see Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. What's going on in Abraham's bosom? Place of paradise, there's water there. Believers are there. Abraham's there. Weird. Lazarus, apparently saved, is there. And the rich man's in hell. He can see Abraham's bosom, and he's asking for Lazarus to come and touch his tongue with water. There's water over there. There's none here in hell. How strange is that, right? Jesus descended and preached to the souls that were imprisoned. Preached is not the word that we think of as evangelizing. It's declared. It's not the invitation of repentance. It's to declare. It's possible that what's being referred to is Jesus. Possible that what's being referred to is Jesus descending into Abraham's bosom and preaching to everyone who had died in hope of the Messiah and salvation through the Lord. Now, think about this. If the rich man was in hell and could see Abraham's bosom, if Jesus, in fact, went there, then those in hell might have been capable of seeing and hearing him also. Jesus preaching for three days to those souls that he then led Free. I want to close you with a verse. Listen, I'm not trying to lead you into some fascinating thing. I'm just, all I'm trying to do with these weird presentations is tell you that there are things about the scripture we can't possibly understand. Can't possibly understand. Matthew chapter 27, 
verse 51. Jesus' crucifixion says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks split. At Jesus' crucifixion, right? Most of us are familiar with that passage. We go, man, what a powerful moment. It also says in verse 52, And the graves were opened, and the many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, literally died, were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared to many. What? What happened to those people? Did they live and then die again? What are you talking about? Here's a thought. What if they, and this is a total what if, what if they were the saints in Abraham's bosom waiting for salvation, waiting for the Messiah, and the Messiah arrives in Abraham's bosom and preaches to them? What if? What if? Just what if? That's all I'm giving you, right? They are resurrected with Jesus Christ, but no one gets to enter heaven without Jesus Christ's sacrifice. He hasn't ascended back to heaven. Jesus was on the earth for 40 days. Possibly they were with him on the earth for 40 days. And then when he ascended, they ascended. Possibly. Or maybe they died. And they're still waiting. There's stuff in the scripture, you guys. There is stuff in the scripture that you read it and you have to just say, what, what can I get out of this? What is this going to do for me? How am I going to live according to what is written here? How do these things pertain to me? Uh, you know, what am I going to apply to myself? Uh, let me back up and read us again. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. I'm going to read, then we're going to close in prayer. For Christ also suffered once, once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through waters. There is also an antitype, which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Where did Jesus preach to these souls who were previously disobedient? Well, guess what? None of us knows. We could speculate for a long time about where and how does that mean. What we can summarize is there were souls who were disobedient and they received their punishment. Who did not receive punishment? Noah and his sons. Eight people did not. Why? Because they were obedient to the Lord. The disobedient were punished. God declared that to them. Jesus declared that to them. That they were punished because of their disobedience. What is our freedom? Our freedom is in Christ and obedience and baptism. They didn't have altar calls in these days. If you heard someone preaching and said, I want to be a Christian, they said, come forward right now and we'll baptize you. You were baptized into the faith. As a symbol of, I'm dying to my flesh, I'm being buried here in this water as Christ was buried in the grave, and I'm being resurrected back to a newness of life. You declared to the whole world, be pretty dramatic, wouldn't it, if you were in public listening to a preacher and you said, I want to get saved. And he said, come down here. I'm going to bury you in this water. And you went home soaking wet. That'd be quite a testimony to the world that I am committed to this newness of life in Jesus Christ. There's not a lot of, not a lot, 
there's some use, but there's not a lot of use in us chasing all of these peripheral verses and creating something that in the end, all we're going to be able to do is debate. All we're going to be able to do is debate. Disobedience is met with punishment. Obedience is met with eternal reward. Christ's sacrifice once for all. That's what every one of us wants. Amen? Let Christ deliver you from your sins. That's how simple this message is. You don't need to make it any more complicated than that. So, that was me just railing on as fast as I could through that subject matter. Please, please, there's a lot of it out there. And as we get closer and closer to the end, oh, the weirdness grows, right? Oh, man, have you checked out Blood Moons? Do you know anything about it? Did you really... Have you ever wondered, there's a comet, there's a, you know, oh, look, here's the Christ, there's the Christ. Jesus told us not to go chasing after these things. The, the one thing we need to focus ourselves on is upon his shed blood and the salvation that he provides through it. Let him deliver you with that. Amen? Amen. So, will you stand with me and we'll pray? There's a whole bunch more to that subject. And again, it's all just a lot of speculation. Please just let the Lord keep it very simple for you. Father, I thank you for your love, your grace, your work in our lives. Help us to be men and women that concentrate on the simplicity of your salvation. We're so grateful, so thankful for who you are and what you've done. Help us to concentrate on you and your work in our lives. Thank you for that once and for all sacrifice. Thank you for forgiveness, for even removing the shame. Help us to not dwell on things that don't belong to us anymore. They're yours. You paid the price. Help us to let go of them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.